Okay, so tonight we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 7. We looked at 1 Samuel chapter 7 Tuesday night, actually chapters 5 through 7. And coming off the heels of a great defeat, Israel was routed by their Philistine enemies. The Ark of the Covenant, that precious religious icon that really represented from God the presence of the Lord, so it's a good icon, it's a representation of God's presence and glory, was captured by the Philistines. It was then a plague to the Philistine cities for about seven months. They sent it back to Israel on the back of the cart. When it got to Israel, then the men of Beth Shemesh received it, they rejoiced, but then they did the, did the biggest no-no ever, like opened the ark or something. They did something really that you shouldn't do as God's people with something that God says not to do. And so there they were struck and afflicted, cursed, killed by God, struck down by God. So then the people of Beth Shemesh said, man, what are we going to do? God's holy, and who are we to us? Who are we to stand before him? Which is a good question. And so they sent the ark up to Kirjath Hiram, still in Israel now, and there it was for 20 years. For 20 years. For 20 years, nothing really happened. They had a great defeat. God had chastened them. Samuel the prophet grew up to become a man during that 20 years. The Philistines, they were just kind of held in check after what they went through with the Ark of the Covenant and the tumors and the plagues that God gave them. So it's like a 20-year lull where not much happened. And so as we come to the text tonight, it's, it's the breaking of that 20-year lull, and it's time for God's people to be revived and restored and renewed. And it's a revival. It's actually a rare revival for God's people in the Old Covenant. So we pick it up in verse 2 of chapter 7. We read this. So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath Hiram a long time. It was there 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you will return to the Lord with all your hearts, put away the foreign gods, the asterisks from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the asterisks and served the Lord only. You know, so often when we read stuff in the Old Testament where there's an exhortation to make things right, no one's listening, right? Like so often there's this exhortation or prophetic word and do this and, and no one's listening. For example, the book of Jeremiah, like over and over and over and no one's listening and no one's responding. So I must say it's rather refreshing to read these few verses where God did speak something to the prophet Samuel and the people did actually respond on a large level. We know that the ministry of Samuel is quite unique in that we've had all these judges for about 400 years. The word of the Lord was rare, and people did what was right in their own eyes. And then God put his spirit on Samuel, the young boy, dedicated, consecrated to the Lord through his mother, Hannah. And he grew up, and now he's like 20-ish. He's grown up. He's, he's a young man. And we already saw last week that the Lord established him that the Lord was with them and he let none of his words fall to the ground or that they didn't fail, that he was blessed. And all Israel knew from Dan to Beersheba, from the north to the south, that God was speaking to them with clear revelation through this prophet Samuel. It was a, a wonderful thing to have for the people of God. And so now Samuel comes forward to the entire nation. 
They are an ethnic people group. They are the people of covenant. And yet, like all of us here tonight, they're individuals before the Lord. They're families before the Lord. They're married couples before the Lord. They're, They're just real people like us, but they were the people of covenant in the Old Testament. And they were also, of course, unique, different than the church. They were an actual nation in the Old Testament. So, of course, so often here in America, we think about revival and these things. And when Franklin Graham did his big prayer thing a year and a half ago there in Washington, D.C., back is like in September, back in 2020 when COVID hit and all that, that we felt like it was this cry for our nation. You know, like everyone let's, let's the church get on their knees and that Chronicles passage, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and repent of their sins, I will come and I'll heal their land. And we actually had our men gathered here that same day. We did a prayer thing, we had a live screen, and it was a really cool thing, and we, we did our part at that time. So, so often for Americans, because of our biblical history and our rich heritage of the Bible influencing our constitution, our form of government, our capitalistic society of uh, self-determination, providing services and rewards and benefits for that, innovation, creativity, these sorts of things, it's most of us that are older, we certainly grew up with that idea of that there are time-honored biblical principles that shaped our lives growing up and shaped our country. Now, obviously, in the last 30 years, there's been a very deliberate, concerted effort by evil men, women, demonically inspired, to destroy and eradicate all that. And they would appear to have been pretty successful thus far with their agendas and their doing. So when you look at a text like this about these people repenting, we can't help but be the church in America and think about that cry for Americans to repent because we are unlike any other country. See, most of you, some of you have traveled the world, and you know when you go to Japan, 95% of the population is purely Japanese, and you understand Japanese culture. It'd be the same if you go to South Korea or Vietnam, these sorts of places, China. If you go to Germany, they're a multicultural now because of all that's gone on in the last five years, but you would have very German people. You go to the Philippines, they're clearly Filipino people. You go to Australia up until like five years ago. Australians are very Australian. They're very cultural and very defined. See, America is so unique that we've been a nation where we've had all these ethnic influences shape and mold our nation at, pre- at previous times in our human history, our history as a nation. So, for example, from like 1800 to 1820, a lot of Germans came to America, including my forefathers, the Ottomans. A lot of them came, a lot of Germans at that time. And so, you know, if you study American history, you'll see, you know, all the influences of different people that came here, the original natives that were here. We don't know as much about them, where they came from, but they came from somewhere. And this nation was formed. And the form of government was shaped by it to ensure that men would be restrained by God from evil and inspired by God for good. That's the history of the United States. Most of you know that. So when you read a text like this, it's hard, if you're an American citizen, not to think like, well, repentance would be really good for the, the country of the United States, right? Wouldn't it be really good to have men who fear God, women who fear God, making choices in government? Of course it would be. Blessed is the nation whose people, uh, whose God is the Lord. But then, of course, we come back to the church, and we look at a passage like this and say, well, because, again, contextually, Israel is a nation. That's why I bring up the United States. You follow me? That's why I bring it up, because contextually, Israel is a nation in this text. But then, since it's the people of covenant, we're the church. So, Really, the truest application for this text in a New Testament way would be the church. The cry and the call for the church to have repentance. 
Now, there's a long history of great revivals in the Church of Jesus Christ in America. D.L. Moody, Charles Finney during the Civil War, Billy Sunday in the Sawdust Trail, Billy Graham, Greg Laurie. There, there, there's been many great men and women that God has used to bring revivals at various times to the people of America that has profoundly affected society, particularly Charles Finney. Charles Finney changed different... When Charles Finney had his revivals in the 1800s, it, the saloons would go out of business. Prostitution would cease in those cities. Like, his preaching radically, profoundly brought change to American communities, the preaching of Charles Finney. So we know for the Church of Jesus Christ in America, we've seen some pretty amazing historical revivals that have happened with the church. The Jesus Movement, the Calvary Chapel Movement, that's considered by many people, not exclusively Calvary Chapel, of course, but God did something very special in the mid to late 60s where he just did something profound that really would still be considered revival and so much of fruitful ministries that we would think that have reached the world. Again, people like Rick Warren, you know, Pastor Chuck was a huge inspiration to Rick Warren. And just people like that, that have nothing to do with Calvary, they were affected by the Jesus movement and what we so often take into the DNA being a Calvary Chapel affiliate. God's done great revivals in church history in America, and perhaps probably the last one that we could say was a true revival was the Jesus movement. And here we are a couple generations later, trying to be faithful to the Lord in 2022. Amen? Yeah, of course. So when we look at this text, we think about the church. Not so much what was, but what is and what might be. And then we also think about individuals. Because in the end, any revival always begins with the individual. It begins with me, the person I see in the mirror. The person in the mirror is the greatest potential for good in humanity for the kingdom of God, but the person in the mirror is the greatest enemy against me being who I'm meant to be in Christ Jesus, and the same for you. About 10 years ago, I finally figured out the real problem on planet Earth is not bad people running government, it's the person in the mirror for me. Because I, I, I can't, these, these things out of my wheelhouse, so many things that, you know, I would pray for and lift up, and I feel a victim of conspiracies of evil people trying to destroy such good things. But in the end, that's, I don't have the control over that. What I have the control over is what I do in my self-determination to obey, to serve the Lord or not serve the Lord, which we all have in common tonight as an unbeliever or a follower of Jesus Christ. So when we look at this text, we really are talking about revival. We're talking about God renewing his people to do something great. Now, there is a big if in this text. If you return to the Lord, that if, you know, the Bible has a lot of big ifs, right? There's a lot of big ifs in the Bible. There are some definitive conditional promises in the Bible with God to humanity that begin with if. And this word has to get our attention. So it's an if. Now, I believe most of you here tonight are doing pretty well with the Lord. But we can all do better with the Lord. I certainly know I can do better with the Lord, and I'm aspiring to do better with the Lord as I just see eternity right there in front of me. I want to do better. I want to find another gear for down the stretch. I would like to see the Church of Jesus Christ in America and worldwide 
find another gear. Well, my wife reads to me segments of Sabina Wormbrandt's book of what it was like to be imprisoned for her faith in Jesus as a pastor's wife in Romania during the Iron Curtain time. I go like, I don't even know. Like, I can't even wrap my mind around that. Or when Sam has shared about his grandparents and what they went through in Romania, under communist Romania, serving Jesus. When Sam has shared those stories, they're just incredible. When Sam shares stories about being a kid and hiding the meat under the seat and having a communist, um, I won't say KGB, but the equivalent of that, riding in your car, hoping they don't smell the meat because your meat's illegal and they'll go to prison if they catch you with the meat. When I read about the church and I study the church and Brother Andrew and all that he did, one of my favorite books, God's Smuggler, Brother Andrew, amazing book. And you read about the miracles and like, man, how do the people do this? Or if you watch The Hiding Place with Corey Tim Boom, like, how do these people risk their lives to hide Jews in their house and be willing to go to concentration camps or death camps and these things? And it was only 80 years ago. It's not that long ago. It's not that long ago. And I'm reminded in how we've been crushed and pressed over the last few years that really what is important in the Church of Jesus Christ, and I've mentioned this even recently, is that we each one find our greatness in Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, obedience to Jesus Christ on a whole nother level. See, I'm going to stand before the Lord and give an account for everything I did here. And you're going to give an account for sitting here. And I want to stand before the Lord and know that I exhorted you, I encouraged you, I comforted you, and I prodded you and, and just built you up to find a deeper gear and, and faster, farther, stronger with the Lord Jesus Christ. Though the outward man's perishing, the inward man's being renewed. The outward woman's perishing, inward woman's being renewed. And we tend to, in the Bible, we see that people tend to get weaker down the stretch in their faith, but there are people who do get stronger. And so I just have a vision for us getting stronger. So in the context of this text, I see the potential to get stronger. For me, for you, for the body of Christ. Because if the current events in the world don't bring the body of Christ to their knees individually, I don't know what would. We are living in a very precarious time. A time where biblical prophecies are unfolding before our eyes. And all the things described in the Word of God, from Ezekiel, 2 Thessalonians, Book of Revelation, Jesus himself, these things are playing out right now. And the events are moving in such a way, so rapidly, that if we're not right with God, the Church of Jesus Christ, if we're not right with God under these circumstances, I don't know what will make us right with God. Because it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And even as these guys had messed with the ark 20 years before, they said, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God and whom shall take it up for us? He's like, who is able to stand before this holy God? They had, they had touched the holiness of God. And they had seen how holy God is. And that in, therein is probably the biggest problem for the church of Jesus Christ in 2022, particularly the United States, is a lack of understanding God's holiness and the day of the Lord, and the accountability to him, who alone is righteous. 
Because people who are in prison for their faith, people who suffer for their faith, people who die for their faith are people who have seen the holiness of God and know who to fear. A holy God, not evil men. And men and women who fear a holy God are free from the fear of men and women. Not completely, but they know how to keep it in check and how to, how to measure it. That's why Jesus said, don't fear the one who can do this to you. Throw the one who can cast your soul in hell. So it's a good text to be reminded of revival for God's people. And we might not be able to force America to repent. And it needs to before God. We not, might not be able to force the body of Christ to repent. Those that have embraced such nonsense and demonic deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons in these last days. But what we can do is be on our knees and repent. That is what we can do. Because as I look at things in the world right now, one thing I control is my heart, my faith with Jesus Christ. So in this text, if you return to the Lord with all your heart. Return to the Lord implies that they're with the Lord in the first place, right? Like you can't return to something you haven't been. Like if you're, you know, if you're returning somewhere, you've been there before. So in this context, these people come and need to return to the Lord. So when the church returns to the Lord, what they're returning to is the gospel of truth, the gospel of grace, the word of God is final authority, the power of the Holy Spirit. They're returning to a life of consecration, of sanctification. Returning to a life of humility and brokenness. All the things that are true, just, noble, praiseworthy, and honorable before the living God. Those are the things that Jesus produces in our life. If you would wake up this morning and say, Lord, give me the mind of Christ. You're returning to thinking the way God wants you to think. If you'd wake up this morning and say, Lord, give me the fruit of the Spirit for the character of my life, you'd be returning to all the things that's good that Jesus wants to do in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, kindness, and anything else that's beautiful that is what Jesus produces because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's what would be coming from our life. And the well of our words would reflect those things. If we say, Lord, Return me to a greater sense of vision for the body of Christ. Fill me with the gifts of the Spirit. You're going to be asking for the power that builds up the church, the kingdom of God on earth. You're going to be asking for gifts of healing, gifts of faith, gifts of miracles, gifts of discernment of spirits, tongues and speaking in tongues. That's what you're going to be asking for if you pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit, with the gifts of the Spirit for service in the church. Because the mind of Christ is here the fruit of the Spirit is here. Well, the mind of the Spirit and mind of Christ is one and the same. Fruit of the Spirit's here. The church is here. The gifts of the Spirit. And then to be praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. To be emboldened for the witness of Christ. And you will be a spiritual woman. And that woman is going to change the world. At least the little world that she walks in. That man's going to change the world. That young man. If you wake up and you're 16 or 12 or 82, 92. If you wake up and you're the mind of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, and the baptism of the Spirit, even when they come sing praise songs at the old folks' home, you're going to be in tune. 
You're going to be on cadence at that Protestant service or that Catholic service or whatever one you go to. You might be confused at that time. You might go to them both. But you're going to be thinking about other people in that room that share that facility with you. And you don't know how fuzzy you'll get when you're sunsetting. But if you're right when you're clear, you'll be better when you're sunsetting. I'm quite certain of it. For out of the buns of a heart, doesn't matter woman speaks. So if you're doing the right things in your life and you build a life that way, when you start to miss parts of your brain from Alzheimer's and dementia, the more that's right, the less likely it'll bring out wrong. So if you lose good parts, then hopefully these other good parts that are still there will be good parts. But if you only got a couple good parts, you lose those parts, guess what you got? You got brackish water. If you return to the Lord with all your heart, now, in the book of Jeremiah, around 590 B.C., when the Babylonians came, and it came to pay. Oh, it, 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 Jesus says, oh, it's time. There'll be a time when, the, when it's time to be born and it cannot be delivered. It, there's, a time, there's a payday coming. There's a payday coming for planet Earth, for sure. And in the book of Jeremiah, when centuries of warnings and centuries of exhortations had finally run their course, there was a generation taken into captivity. You know, that's Daniel and Meshach, Shach, Abednego. Esther grew up a generation later in the faraway land. And in that background, when they were so disheartened by their environment and their being displaced and all that, God said that famous passage, you know, my thoughts for you are good thoughts to give you a future and a hope, not thoughts of evil. But then he went on to say, and you will search for me with all, you will search for me and find me when you search me with all your heart. That famous Jeremiah 29, 11 passage is followed by 20, 29, 12 that says, you will seek me and you will find me when you do so with all your heart. God wanted revival for the people of captivity even as they face the consequences of centuries of sin of their forefathers coming upon them. And they were, they were bold enough to go in the fire without fear, spend a night with lions, go before the king. If I live, I live. If I die, I die. All your heart. In the book of Revelation, when Jesus is writing to the seven churches of Ephesus, the seven churches of Asia, the first one is Ephesus, and he said, you know, you're doing so many good things, but you've done this. You've left your first love. You have left your first love. And that, again, is all your heart. Because if you've left your first love, you're going through religion. You're playing religion. You're playing church. But it's not all your heart. Because, you know, your heart is a, a, akin to the one you love. So when you're doing church, even really good organized church even sound orthodox church, but you've left your first love, then the heart's not there because the heart is there with love. And so we're reminded how basic and how important it is that for the people of God, if you return to the Lord, so if we need to return tonight, please return. If you need to return to the Lord tonight, please if the Holy Spirit is saying to you right now, please return. It's to your own best interest and planet Earth and the human race and the person you see in the mirror. 
Or, in the same thought of the verse, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, if it needs to be all of our heart, I know very few of us tonight would say, Pastor Joey, I'm serving the Lord with all my heart. But some of us could say, like, well, I truly am trying to serve the Lord with all my heart. Then that's really good. But some of us know right away, I'm not serving the Lord with all my heart. I'm not serving the Lord at all. I'm serving with a divided heart. That's, that's, a, that's Galatians 5, the flesh and the spirit warring against each other. The flesh is not with all of our heart. <laughs> that's the double-minded woman, the double-minded man. But to want to serve the Lord with all of our heart, that's a good thing. Even David with his great failures, King David, who we'll get to in this book later on. We are told that he had a heart for God, and that was his great strength. That means his heart was with the Lord. And even in the, in the latter part of his life, in, in 2 Samuel, when he's recounting that beautiful, it's like a psalm, he says, Lord, I, I serve you with all my heart. He really did. He had some great failures, but they didn't negate that his heart really was true and devoted to the Lord, which is comfort to us. That means we're not headed for, we're not perfection, and we're not going to attain perfection, but we can aspire for just a, a deeper commitment. See, if you went to marriage counseling on a bad marriage, the marriage counselor would tell you, well, do the little things that will improve your marriage, right? Like, hey, you don't have to get the last word in every time, right? You don't have to have the final say. You know, some people always have to have the final say. They say, you don't have to have the final say. You don't always have to be right. You don't really know it all, so you don't have to know it all. Do these little things. Bring Jesus in the equation. Serve others. Serve this person. And, and you would begin, listen, you'd begin to make your marriage better. That's what would happen. Your marriage would get better. And maybe you could go back to, you could find a lost love by tearing up and breaking up the fallow ground. That, that would happen. Well, even as it would happen in human relations, it can happen even more important in the relationship with God. Because God says, break up the fallow ground of your heart. When people, you can make walking with the Lord like a bland, below average marriage. It's just something you do. It's convenient. It's a partnership. It works. And you can do that. That's called religion. But the relationship is a growing one. And when you see like pictures like Billy and Ruth Graham when they're in their 70s or 80s and you see that love they have for each other, like, ooh, ooh, ooh. You know, and they didn't have a perfect marriage. No one does. But they have a true marriage. And though that were woman's perishing and that were man's perishing, their love is going deeper and stronger. That's what we would hope for in our marriages, those that you're married. Not just to exist in a marriage, but to have a thriving, flourishing marriage and doing the things that make it better and better. So when you go to assisted living, the two of you together, or maybe one goes into memory care and you're still in assisted living, but you walk 100 yards down the hall to go spend time with them. Better and better, deeper and deeper. See, that's what we want to have with the Lord. We want to be returning with all of our heart, not a robotic, mundane relationship with the Lord. That woman, that man is ready for the day of the Lord because her heart is with the Lord. And now we know him dimly, but now we'll see him in glory clearly. That's what we're headed toward.
clarity and fullness of the relationship. Because if we don't, if we don't love the Lord with all of our heart, then we're going to love something else. We, we're going to serve somebody. We're going to serve the Lord in the power of the Spirit. We're going to serve our flesh in the power of Adam or Eve. One leads to life, the other leads to death. One brings joy and peace, the other brings sorrow and contention and heartache. One produces really good fruit, the other produces really bad fruit. Samuel spoke to the house of all Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, the big if, return with everything. Everything. We're all going to stand before the Lord. We're all going to breathe our last. You know, I was talking with someone yesterday about projecting how we're going to feel when we're dying, like what we're going to think. So let's do that for a minute. What do you think you're going to think when you're stepping into eternity? Like, seriously, like, if you have just even a second to calibrate it, like the plane's going down, like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to glory. We'd be praising the Lord when everyone's screaming. Or you're bleeding out and you realize within a minute, like, I'm dying right now. What do you even think? Or it's terminal and you get to think about it longer. And you're fading. How are you going to handle that? See, I have found some people that love the Lord and walk so with the Lord have been very afraid to die. And I've seen some people that love the Lord that have not been afraid to die. So I ask myself, hey, now I've almost died a couple times. And I know how I acted at YMA Bay in 40-foot surf 30 years ago. I cried like a baby for mercy and you know, made the sign of the cross when I touched the beach and it just went my way. But I, I thought for sure, I, I thought, I, I, it, was, it could happen. But I don't know, like, am I going to be like, just, or am I going to be like, but what about you? Because if you have returned to the Lord and you're serving the Lord with all your heart, even if you're afraid, you know it's going to be good. I don't know. I don't have the answer. I don't know if you're going to, like, cry for mommy when you're dying. I don't know if I'm going to cry for mommy when I'm dying. I don't know. But we will die. And some of us are wired a certain way that we'll just be at total peace with the Lord on that. And we might have the best walk with the Lord right now, but we, may, we just may be screaming like it's the end of the world. I don't know. Nor do you. But I do know when you cross over that line, that with, serving the Lord with all your heart, you're going to glory. A glory that's inconceivable in our finite minds. Isn't that amazing? To think that heaven is a glory that's inconceivable. Let me say that again. Our destiny is a glory that is inconceivable for our human minds. It can't be understood. It can't be apprehended. Only by faith. We have to believe that Jesus says, I prepare a place for you in my Father's house. We have to believe the prophecies of glory and the promises of glory. But even Paul said, when I saw it, I can't even utter it because it it demeans it. It's so high in glory that even in our minds, created in the image and glory of God to be almost like little gods so we can put Jeeps on Mars, we cannot picture it. I has not seen nor ear heard those things that God has prepared for those who love him. So it's worth it being all in. It's to your benefit, my benefit in time and temporal. It's all our benefits for all eternity. 
Then he says in the same verse, okay, so if you return to the Lord and if you put away the foreign gods and the asterisks among you. And the asterisks were the little sex girl, girly things designed for fertility, sexual simulation, all that stuff. And then the next passage, it goes on to say uh, Baal as well. And Baal was evidently Asherah's husband. We've mentioned this with these ancient gods. They interchanged them. And the different people groups and ethnic groups, they would take a certain god and kind of recreate that god or give it a new name. And again, the, the classic one is Poseidon and Neptune. It's the same god, Roman, Greek, same god, god of the ocean, stuff like that. But... What we do know about all gods, little g gods, is they represent lust. They represent passion, the things of the flesh. They also represent ideologies, or even like, for example, with mammon, it represents wealth, like temporal wealth. And Jesus said, you can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve two masters. This is the problem with idolatry. You can't serve an idol and serve the Lord. But what did Israel try to do for 500 years plus? Serve Jehovah and serve the asterisks. Solomon tried to do that. He builds a temple to Jehovah where God's presence fills the spirit. The spirit fills the presence of the temple's dedication. Everyone falls on their face. It's the best party with God's people ever in, in the Bible. You know, like it's amazing. And then he starts building little shrines for all the little goddesses that his wives, his foreign wives worship. You know, those shrines lasted for hundreds of years. The religious prostitution, the homosexual prostitution, they were there all along the booths, little booths, like little perverted booths, like little tents where people did their business. They were there. And they were there not just for decades. Body of Christ, they were there for centuries. And as every prophet rose up and spoke the word of the Lord, on a national level, We'll come to it, Josiah. But until Josiah, no one ever removed them all. But still, for centuries, there were men and women who removed them from their hearts, though they walked among them. And none of us can change yesterday, but we can certainly affect today and tomorrow. And the wisest thing we can do is to not bow down to Ashereth, Baal, and the foreign gods that are offensive and contrary to the kingdom of God. The Bible calls that a divided heart. The Bible calls that in James chapter 1, being double-minded, tossed to and fro. All your heart, or as Billy Graham would say, Jesus is Lord of all, or is not Lord at all. And the challenge that we all face is to live a life completely consecrated to the Lord in the Spirit in a world completely at war against the Spirit. And to not let the ideologies and the gods and the lusts and the flesh of our world bring us down. We have to go forward. And we have to repent. And we have to do better. We have to do better. I need to do better. You need to do better. We need to do better. Because we don't don't want to get to heaven and stand before the Lord and think, I could have done better. We don't get a redo. Either we soften our heart and we repent and get right with the Lord, or we harden our heart and we don't. And every day of compromise and hardened heart 
holds back the power of the Spirit and the fullness of what our life is meant to be, living by faith in Jesus' name on planet Earth as a disciple of Jesus Christ. We have to put away the asterisks and the baals. And there's a consistent theme over and over in the Bible. In the Old Testament, prior to this, when God called Jacob, who's Israel, he said, hey, Jacob, when his whole house was in chaos, he goes, hey, we, we got to have a talk. We, we, you and me. Yeah, we got to have a talk. And, and, and Jacob's like, okay, everybody in the family, he calls all of his adults together. Bring me all your idols. Bring me all the things that are contrary to the Lord. And he dug a big hole and he buried them at the terebinth tree. See, that, that, that's, when you know you're going to stand before the Lord, you're going to dig a hole and bury the idols. But if you think you're not going to stand before the Lord till next week, you might carry those idols around for five days this week. We need to be like Jacob and say, you know, we're way off, our compass is way off right now, but I just got called into the boss's office. Jehovah's calling me, and I'm going to stand before the Lord, so I don't care what you adult children think. Bring me all the household idols right now, and we're burying them right here. That's a man who is prepared to meet his maker. And if we just keep in mind, myself, all of us, Church of Jesus Christ, that we need to prepare ourselves to meet our maker, we'll dig ditches to bury things in those holes. But if we think it's just going to go on, we're going we're to downshift. And we're going to sell for so much less, and then it's game over. The Bible talks a lot in the New Testament about putting off things and putting on things. And as I said, the idols so often represent ideologies or lust or various things. So the Bible says those are angry, put off anger and, you know, put on kindness or put off wrath and malice. It talks about putting off sexual morality, putting on righteousness. In Ephesians and Colossians particularly, there's this great contrast of what you put off which is the old man, the old woman, and what you put on. And again, the behaviors that are offensive to the Lord in our flesh can all be identified with various gods of the Old Testament in various ways. Angry gods, wrathful gods, lustful gods. Men and women have been making gods of their own minds for a long time to represent their ideologies, their lifestyles, and their worldviews contrary to God's heart, mind, and will in his word. And the church does it too. The church does it every time the church embraces something that's offensive to God and says God made it that way or that's the way it is. They're storing up wrath for the day of the Lord. And the Bible says that judgment begins in the house of God. And I don't often wonder if the last two years and what we're currently going through on planet Earth is not a judgment defined by the Lord to strengthen and purge his church and to refine us for the day of the Lord. For it seems like for all the fire that is being out there consuming that which is combustible, it seems a lot of it's directed at the church. And how much faith do we really have? And how strong is our faith? Are we strong Christians or impotent Christians? Do we have true character and conviction to stand for what we believe in and what's right and consistent? Or we just roll over and capitulate truth because it makes our life easier and helps us keep our job? 
And if you think we've been finding stuff out in the last two years, how much do you think we're going to find out in the next couple of years? No. Today is the day we have to put away our foreign gods. Everything offensive to Jesus. And then the third thing, if you prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. It's back to the heart. Serve the Lord only. Like I just said, we cannot serve, we cannot serve two masters. Do we wake up and want to live for the Lord or do we wake up and want to live for ourselves? Do we live to please Jesus Christ and bring him glory? Is his word the standard? Is his call in our life the single most precious thing in our life? Or is there a divided heart? Do we give up humility and service for the Lord for pride and selfishness in what we want to do? And I'll close with this thought. Back to Josiah. He lived 38 years. That seems old when you're 20 or 30, but it doesn't seem, you know, when you're 61, you're already like, that's way back in the rearview mirror. Josiah lived at a very difficult time. The judgment of God was coming upon not just his people, but on a lot of people. He was the last great king of Israel. He loved God's word, he believed God's word, and he loved God's people. And he called God's people to repentance and to serve the Lord. To truly serve the Lord. And he sent out the messengers all throughout Israel and said, we're going to serve the Lord by renewing the Passover. We're going to, we're going to serve the Lord by obeying everything in his word and his law for the nation of Israel. That's what we're going to do. And his messengers were beaten and they were mocked. But some, were, some people hated him. And some people did come from a couple of tribes down to Jerusalem to partake in that Passover feast. But you know, as beautiful as that is, he went up on those hills that no one had the guts or the courage to tear down. And he tore down every single offensive thing on the hill surrounding Jerusalem. Things had been allowed for over 300 years going back to Solomon. He went up there in the prime of his life And he was all in with no compromise, no idols in his heart, no idols in his home. His heart was fully lost. That guy marched up there in the calling of being a king, and he ripped every one of those offensive things down in Israel. And no other king did that. No one did that. Not Jehoshaphat, not Hezekiah, not like that. He went up there, and he cut them up, and he burned them. What a legacy. And then he died in combat, fighting the Egyptians when they were in Israeli territory. And that's how he stepped into eternity. Now, I don't know, I don't quite get Pharaoh Necho defeating him there by Megiddo. But if you're a king and that's your land, and stand with your people, right? All the promises of God said it's your land, so, you know, here we stand, here we fall. And it might be like that for us, some way or another. But Josiah served the Lord 
From his very youth through his teenage years to his adult life, he served the Lord from start to finish. He served the Lord, he served the Lord, he served the Lord. He never served men. He served the Lord, and then he served men in the name of the Lord. And he showed men and women how they should live when they're the people of covenant. He was brave, and he was courageous, and he was uncompromising, and he was an incredible man of character. He was the only one that wasn't afraid of the gay agenda of his day. He's the only one that wasn't afraid to stand up to those people and deal with it amongst the people of covenant. He was the only one that had courage to speak the truth and wholly invest his life with the truth, whatever it cost him in that sense. And that probably is the greatest revival in the Bible is the revival of King Josiah. And then... Judgment. The most evil kings imaginable. And judgment. Horrible judgment. Judgment of the worst imagination. And you don't have to imagine it because it's described for us. People eating their own children in the famine, in the besiegement of Jerusalem. Judgment at the highest level. And this world is moving toward global judgment from the Lord. For as it says in Revelation 6, the wrath of the Lamb has come, and who is able to stand? My wife asked me so many years ago when we first met, what do you think the world's coming to? When she was just a girl in the classroom. And I said, Jesus Christ is coming back. And she said, why do you say that? And I said, because Europe is a revived nation, and the Antichrist is going to come out of Europe. Israel is where it all goes down, and Israel is a nation. And we're moving toward a cashless society. She said anything else. And I, we began to talk about other things related to Bible prophecy. It's all in play. It's all in play. So this text reminds us tonight to be all in. We've been talking about that. I'm just teaching verse by verse. So this is the word of the Lord to us. All in, all in, all in. To serve the Lord with all our heart. To prepare our hearts for the Lord and to serve him only. This is what we control. I study all the other stuff going on that I don't control. And as Pastor Chuck used to say, I'm not looking for the Antichrist, I'm looking for Christ. The return of the Lord. And I would say the same. It's all in play, right before our eyes. The day the Lord draws near, and it's a day closer today than it was yesterday. And however world events are going to play out, they're going to play out. It's bigger than us. But the woman in the mirror, the man in the mirror, that's our stewardship. Let us embrace it and just say, Lord, here I am. Sabina Warmbrandt, Brother Andrew, Corey Timboom, Billy Graham, Whatever it is, John and Betty Stam, whatever it is, I'm yours. Use me. I believe all things. I hope all things. I'm yours in Jesus' name.